Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we read celebrity memoirs that were written by other people, but we're doing like kind of our own artistic cover song of each memoir where we're going to tell you what we already read. And if you want to hear the original version, like a lot of times the original is better. Okay. That is actually true. So go listen to the original Except if that's what you for like. When Britney Spears covered. Oh my God. I can't get no satisfaction. Yeah. When my dad told me that there was an original of that, I said, don't even play it. I've heard what I needed to hear and I don't want to go backwards. <laughs> but if you like our cover version, like Same Old Mistakes by Rihanna, then stick around. Have fun. Okay, huge news. We're coming in multiple towns. Listen up, Canada specifically. Big, big news. We are going to be in Vancouver on February 15th, which I believe is this Thursday. So please come out. We still have some tickets left. We love you so much. I don't know that we'll be coming back soon because of the international tariffs and whatnot. <laughs> because of the embargo against us. <laughs> <laughs> NAFTA. Oh my god. Things get in the way. I'm trying to interject with global terms and I don't know. You gotta come up with EU. No, just go slower. Hold on. I'm working on one. The ocean. <laughs> but if you didn't hear on our last week's episode, we are coming to Montreal March 7th, one night only, in an unprecedented feat of generosity. <laughs> We are giving 100% of ticket sales to Montreal Cares Montreal Cares community which is something that actually my husband cares about a lot. He cares about Montreal caring, and it is like a basketball situation. And we care about what Matt cares about. Yeah, because he cares about us. Yeah. So we care right back, and this time we're caring with money. So if you come, you're not just coming and enjoying a night of live comedy and meeting friends and sisterhood. You're also supporting a great local cause, and all of your dollars will go. We will be there to chat and laugh and do a meet and greet. So please come on out. The tickets are in the link below and on our Instagram and on our TikTok Everywhere you would think to go. And if you can't find it there, Google Celebrity Memoir Book Club Montreal. And you might find it there. And finally, we are going to be at the Moon Tower Comedy Festival in Austin, Texas, April 18th. We love Texas. We love I Queso. I love Austin specifically. I can't wait to go. And I've been wanting to do Moon Tower for quite some time. So anyway, Claire. Ashley. If you were to write a memoir. If you were to write a memoir. What, what would, would you, you call last week's chapter? I asked you first. Damn it. Okay. Well, yours isn't going to make sense after mine. Okay. You're going to feel ridiculous. Damn. My week is all Tina all the time. Okay. Because today I woke up, I sat down and I read Tina Turner's I, Tina in its entirety. I read the entirety of I, Tina. Great. And I really walked away thinking, I don't even care about myself. <laughs> like nothing I'm doing in my life is important. I am so uninteresting. The idea that anybody would care what I did this week when you could be learning about Tina Turner's lifetime, I really left being like, there's more important things to say, and it's to talk about Tina Turner. So actually, I, Tina, would be the name. <laughs> I, Tina, Tina, you, Tina. <laughs> we, Tina. Ashley, if you were a celebrity and last week was a memoir chapter, what would it be called? Oh, my God. I guess I'm not allowed to do one. No, you can't. I tried to go second, but you wouldn't let me. Because I do be Tina. You're Tina Turner. But I also... You got the legs. You got the gams, girl. Oh, my God. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just like sticking with the program, sticking with the schedule, having a nice time against all odds. Beautiful. And I don't really have anything specific to add. So should we go Tina? Yes. So this book, I, Tina, was written by Tina Turner, My Life Story. This is her first book. I believe she has a second book out. Which I would read for the Patreon if people are interested because yeah. I'm really like full tina Yeah. This book came out in 1986. And she was born November 26, 1939. 
She did pass away last year. At age 83. So this book came out when she was in her 40s, and I'm so excited to share her story with you. I'm so excited to share it with you guys. This is such a good book. I do want to give a quick disclaimer that every single person in this book is named Anne or Anna, including Tina. Also, a quick disclaimer that there is a lot of abuse. Yes. I mean, it's the story of a woman who was trapped in an abusive relationship for like fully 50% of her life. Yeah. She was born in Nutbush, which out the gate, hilarious. I can't believe the way that Nutbush just kept on being written on a page. She was born in Tennessee, as we said, right before World War II, 1939. She does an interesting thing with this book, which is that she is interviewed. So the way this book is done is that there is a narrator who takes almost on almost like a textbook contextualization role where he comes in and with like a omnipresent narrator third person situation, just tells you what was going on in the world, tells you either what was going on in the world politically or what was going on in the world of music. Or sometimes he just comes in and is talking about facts of Tina's life. It's written as a biography, like a very unemotional biography. And it is like very effective in that when the narrator talks, you go, well, this is the truth. This is what was going on. And it hurries the book along so that when she comes in and she is giving her perspective, which is done in large chunks, it's done like Tina, colon, as if she's just speaking directly to the writer, like monologuing, you get her perspective. And then there's tons of monologues and quotes from the people that were around her. Yeah. And it really made me wonder like, wow, I can't believe that person sat down to talk with the author or like, what are these chunks from? Because that's how I felt too. I go, Ike Turner was just sitting down and telling you about a watch he wore once after everything that goddamn fucking demon did. Yeah. And then like, Mick Jagger sat down for a conversation. Like some of the people that are like painted very, not Mick Jagger, but like some people like Ike who are painted very unfavorably in this book sitting down to just like lend their perspective. It's very interesting. This book is almost done like a music documentary, like a yeah. self-produced music documentary because it's obviously done through her perspective and to tell the story of her life, but it does bring in the background of like, how did I grow up? Where did this person come from? Which I think is very effective. And this book to me, I had no problem sitting down and just like blowing through it. And it is, this was a quick read. It's a quick read. It's so compelling. It's so emotionally gripping. And it's very clear and straightforward. And I really appreciate the way that they have the narrator come in and get through the expositional and contextual chunks. Okay, can I say one thing that might sound pretty stupid? Yeah. But reading these kind of scene setting excerpts with like everything that was happening in the world, I think there are a lot of things that I never realized were all happening at once. I mean, that's definitely a true thing where they go through and colorize photos. The way that your brain puts certain timelines together yeah. and you don't see what's like cutting through all of them. I have had a real realization over the last like six months that I need to be doing a lot more like individual reading and research because I think that there are a lot of things that don't line up inside my noggin that I, I would like not to this year learn, but I, I would like to be, you know, in 10 years time, be like less of a dummy. It's hard because it is a lot. <laughs> Another thing is that I think we like rely very heavily on our education system. And I was like, well, I learned a lot of stuff. So isn't that enough? But what I actually learned was no stuff. I think it's also hard because we live in this world where so much information you can get at the click of a button. So it feels hard to know what you need to know inside of you. In the same way that like with a calculator, you're like, well, why would I need to know my multiplication tables? I'll never be in a position where I can't just like do it on a calculator or I'll never need to learn to spell because I'll always have spell check. And it's hard to know where to draw the line of like what needs to be stored in the RAM of the brain, you know? 
Can I say something? Which, like, I know we didn't know how far computers and calculators would come when I was in third grade. Actually, I'm sure they actually did know. <laughs> I think when you were in third grade, you had gone to the moon. <laughs> I didn't specifically go. <laughs> no, but- I've never been invited. I would go if given the opportunity. Sure. Actually, that's not true. I'm not that big on travel. Um, (laughs) Anyway, what I was going to say was I do think it's important to understand like the mechanics of math, but I do think like sitting there and memorizing multiplication tables for like one hour a day, five days a week for an entire school year was like not a good use of school time. Amen. Anyway, so here we are. It's 1939. We're in Nutbush. Anna May Bullock was born on the morning of November 26, 1939 at Brownsville's Haywood Memorial Hospital. It is a sparsely inhabited mile-long burp in the road. That's a funny thing to say. I don't know if that's her phrase or someone else's. The South. <laughs> As populous, maybe 50 families tucked away like weevils in the surrounding pastures, groves, and hollows. She has an older sister named Aline, and they are very heavily Native American, actually, on both sides. Her father, Floyd Richard Bullock, was a resident overseer at the Poindexter Farm, supervising harvests and hands for the property's white owners. They actually had a comfortable life financially. She had one older sister. They each had their own room. They had a nice little life. But unfortunately, the parents hated each other. For it had been her misfortune to be the last unwanted child of a foundering union. Yeah, she talks about the mother that her sister Aline had versus the mother that she had as just being two different versions of this woman like a caring and loving person versus for Anna Mae, a.k.a. Tina, she did just kind of ignore her and treat her as this person that just kind of happened upon them. Despite the emotional dislocations, there was redeeming sweetness to life then too, looking back. The fact is I had no love for my mother or my father from the beginning, from birth, but I survived. To tell the truth, I haven't received a real love almost ever in my life, believe it or not. Oh, that is so sad. People look at me now and think, what a hot life I must have lived. Ha! I never found a real lasting love, but I have survived. Alienation, rejection. I didn't know those words existed when I was a child. I just knew that I couldn't communicate with my mother and that my father didn't seem to want me around. I felt like a complete outsider, only one of a kind. So I went off by myself out in the world to walk in the pastures and to be with the animals. I was lonely, but I didn't dwell on it. I just said, okay. And I became accustomed to it, I guess. I didn't have anybody, really. No foundation in life. So I had to make my own way, always, from the start. I had to go out in the world and become strong to discover my mission in life. So then her parents both move into the city to find better jobs. And she is left with her father's family, who she just like doesn't like very much. And also her sister got to go with her mother's family, who was very warm and welcoming. Her father's family, for some reason, thought that she wasn't her father's actual child. And they were not very kind to her. Her uncle Gil, who she lived with, like shot someone and killed him once over a girl. And he just like went to jail. I don't know. I feel like there was a lot of like death and weird stuff happening. And she was from a small town and she says everything that was happening to us was like kind of the talk of the town. It wasn't the norm that your uncle would just shoot somebody dead and be arrested. So then they move into Knoxville with their parents. Richard and Zelma Bullock sent for their daughters to join them for a few months. And in the city, she like first is really freaked out by how busy and intense it is. But then she finds the whole which is like she would go to movies with her friends on the weekends and then her parents would be at this kind of bar area called The Hole where she would go meet them afterwards and they'd always be like, oh yeah, we're going to leave in a second, but they were never leaving in a second. So she would get to kind of stand in the doorway and watch adults party and she was like, I love a scene. She loved a party. She was like, sometimes people were getting stabbed or ears were getting cut off, but I don't know, it was fascinating stuff. But they were also listening to music and dancing and I loved listening to music and dancing. She loved to sing and boogie 
She could learn any step. She started singing at the Spring Hill Baptist Church. And this is a quote from her mother. So her mother gets interviewed for this early part of her life. She had a good voice even then. She would go to the movie and if it was a musical, she would come home and sing the songs and act out the parts that she remembered seeing. She was something, all right, a real live wire. If I hadn't been, well, my husband and I had problems from the time I was pregnant with Anna Mae and they just got worse. It was kind of a difficult time for me, but she mostly liked playing alone. (laughs) Then she meets this girl named Margaret. Margaret's kind of her cousin. She's like three years older than Anna Mae. And she just, like, is the mothering guiding force for anime. She teaches her about sex. She teaches her about, like, adulthood. and the- She really fills in every missing female relationship she has. Her yes. older sister is with the other family. Her mother doesn't really like her. So she's her sister. She's her mother. She's her best friend. She is this, like, lonely little girl. And she has one confidant, and it's Margaret. So then her mom leaves. Her mom just, like, moves to St. Louis And kind of without a word, it really hit me how much I loved my mother, how much I hated her too. I guess I was learning how close love and hate can be. It wasn't just that she had left. That was fine. I guess we knew that would happen eventually. But I wanted her to come back for us, for Aileen and me. And I waited and waited and she never did. So then her dad gets remarried. He like tries really hard to be nice. I don't know. This woman, I think, seemed kind of intense. He married a city gal. Who went by frog and her daughter went by pig, you see? (laughs) A city gal who stabbed her dad in the groin. She wanted the nice life. And when he couldn't give her the pearls and the whirls, she stabbed him right in the penis. (laughs) That's how those city girls be. They slick. (laughs) Daddy got scared of her, too. Anyway, one day, frog and pig were gone, too. That really is what they called them, frog and pig. And she's like, they were beautiful women, but they did look like a frog. And the little one did look like a pig, but in a beautiful way. (laughs) I could see it. You know who looks just like a frog? Kind of Sydney Sweeney. Oh, yeah. Also, she looks just like FKA Twigs, and I don't think anybody's talking about it but me. They have the exact same face. Interesting. Yeah. Look it up. Learn something. And then you know what? Daddy left, moved to Detroit, and left Aline and me with cousin Ella Vera. Just like that, I couldn't believe it. Here I was, 13 years old, with no mother, and now my father was gone too. So I became a real loner. If anyone took care of me, it was my sister. And then she spent a lot of time with Margaret. And then because she's just kind of alone in the city, she ends up getting a job working for a family called the Hendersons. She watches their kids and she is like, oh, the Hendersons were a family that I wanted to emulate. They loved each other so much. They like loved their baby. She basically moved in with them. I wasn't even interested in that place anymore because I was learning about this whole other world, the white world, I guess, with magazines and books and culture. The Hendersons just being the way they were opened my eyes. They taught me so much. Those people were really like parents to me. So then Margaret becomes pregnant and she is like really concerned because she wanted to go to college. She'd always dreamed of going to college and maybe becoming a teacher. The guy who had gotten her pregnant was actually pretty wealthy and wanted to marry her, but she was in love with somebody else and she didn't know what she was going to do. And then she died in a car accident. And this is like the first true heartbreak of Tina Turner's life. She just like fell to the ground. She couldn't believe what had happened. She's funny. She's like, I thought only white people like fainted, <laughs> but she fainted when she heard. That was the first time I realized what hurt was, I think, real hurt. So now, I mean, think about it. Her mom's gone. Her dad's gone. Her sister and her have been separated between families. Then her one cousin that she feels so close to dies. So then she falls in love with this boy named Harry. She is so funny. This story just is funny. We can honestly move through most of it because Harry Taylor is no, but like, it's like not relevant to the rest of her life. It's her high school boyfriend. But she goes on and on about how handsome he was. And she goes, Harry and I didn't get together right away. There was a problem. Her name was Rosalind, that little bitch. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then what about like the use of smiley faces in this book? She ends up having to move houses. Cousin Elevera stopped getting money from the dad. And so then they have to go live with Mama Roxana, who is another family member. And so they have to move schools. We'd be going to Carver High in Brownsville. And that's where Harry was. Smiley face. (laughs) It's a smiley face like an old Microsoft Windows 98 would have done. I've never seen font like this. It predates the emoji in a hieroglyphic way. And it pops up twice, I think, of the whole book. Yes. And one is that she gets to date Harry. So the first weekend living in this new town, she sees Harry at a party. He comes up to her. They're going together pretty quickly. And he... My God, it's so crazy how normal it was to just not be faithful because it doesn't really seem to affect her feelings towards him that he was just like constantly breaking up with her to go with other girls and then like also just cheating on all of them constantly. I do think, okay, I don't know if this is true or not, but I have a vague memory of being taught in one of my history classes that at the advent of the car, teenage sexuality had a kind of a heyday because for the first time there was a place you could go bang. Yeah, so she lost her virginity in a car with Harry. And I think that that was quite typical. And I think people were like, have sex with just one woman, but I got this sex mobile on wheels. I'm having sex in a car and the car can drive anywhere. (laughs) I can stop in front of anybody's door. Why would I only have sex with one girl behind a door? Harry was the beginning of my Scorpio phase, which lasted a whole half of my life. (laughs) So he goes off to war at one point. I think he fights for Korea, comes back. He doesn't fight for Korea. (laughs) No, he was on the other side. I thought Harry was back with me, but I guess he was still fooling around and Teresa had gotten pregnant, so they got married. My girlfriend heard the news before I did. So she was living with Mama Georgie, who was one of her grandmothers. When summer came, the Hendersons took me with them on a little vacation trip to Dallas, Texas. While I was gone, Mama Georgie got sick and passed away. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, of course, my mother came down for the funeral. By this time, Daddy was completely out of the picture. And Aline had been living back in St. Louis with their mom. And so the mom is like, I guess come back to St. Louis with me. So Aline is a little bit older. She's kind of settled in St. Louis. She's three years older, I think. So I think she's working as a nurse. Is that true? I don't know. But she has a job. And what she likes to do on the weekends and at night is go to all these music clubs around town. Aline would rave about what she considered the hottest band in town, the Kings of Rhythm, led by a wiry little guitarist named Ike Turner. So now we get the background on Ike Turner and the Kings of Rhythm. They'd gotten a little bit fucked over by a record label at one point, which kind of, I think, contributes to Ike's controlling nature in some... I think it justifies his already controlling nature to him. Yeah, I was going to say anything justifies. No, 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 no. I think he already had a controlling nature. And because of this early negative experience with record labels, it like solidified in himself this like need to be obsessively and violently in control. So she first sees him perform and she goes, God, he's ugly. But there was something about him. Then he got on stage and picked up this guitar. He hit one note and I thought, Jesus, listen to this guy play. And that joint started rocking. The floor was packed with people dancing and sweating to this great music. And I was just sitting there amazed, staring at Ike Turner. I thought, God, I wonder why so many women like him. He sure is ugly. But I kept listening and looking. I almost went into a trance just watching him. I mean, their relationship did not start out sexual or romantic. And you could argue it was never once for one second romantic. But basically, he was mostly a cover artist. He had grown up. I mean, he had taught himself to play instruments from a very young age and been very involved in music and been very like ambitious and determined in the music scene. And he had gotten fucked over by record labels. But he himself was not really a writer or a singer, but he was a great musician. Yeah. And I think he was a great performer. Yes. And they were saying so many things that like Jimi Hendrix were doing were all taken from what he was doing at this point as a live performer. Yeah. I wanted to get up there so bad. This is Tina. 
There was tons of talent on that stage, but there was also lots of people in the crowd always trying to get up and sing with the band. I would sit there every night and try to get his attention, but he avoided me. So there's like one girl who wanted to get up there and sing. So he gave her a chance and she totally sucked. And so Tina's like, God, now he's never going to give me a chance because that girl totally sucked, but I can actually sing. And then one night, so Aline was dating one of the band members and she was like kind of arguing with him and he came back and was trying to fuck with her and started trying to put a mic in Aline's face. And then Tina took the mic and started singing and Ike was on stage playing and he was like, wow. And from that day forward, they started bringing her up to sing with them. Girl, you can sing. It was the first time I ever felt like a star and I was in. I started singing with the Kings of Rhythm. Ike, let me do You Know I Love You and Since I Fell For You. Her mom finds out she's singing and gets really mad at her. Tina's like, fuck you. You left for like six years. You can't ditch your daughter for six years in some prime time being a daughter years and then come back and be my mom now. From then on, Ike and I were like brother and sister. He went out and bought me my first stage clothes, sequin dresses. Ike was very into taking care of people. The first thing he would do when he met you was buy you clothes. And if you needed your teeth done or anything, I think I had a cavity at the time. He would take care of that too. He had to make you become his. He had to own you. I could cover, says Clayton Love. He had a keen ear and he could play a song just like the record. A copy, however, no matter how expert, is still a copy. But what Tina had, and at this point her name was still Ann Bullock, was she had this unique, interesting voice that was so powerful and unlike anything they'd heard, and she made every song theirs. Also, it seems that on stage she was an absolute friggin' like it's just a powerhouse powerhouse like she just could give it and give it she had energy like i've never heard of and later when you see him working her basically into the ground i can't believe the show she was getting up and i can't believe the way she was performing and it's so crazy that she just had that inside of her like she just could she just could but she just knew too so she's singing with him and they're touring and she is dating one of the members of the band and then she gets pregnant and she talks to him about marriage and he just kind of vanishes. She had been being paid like $10 a week to sing with the band. She was living in some tiny apartment, taking on a second job as like a nurse's assistant to pay rent. And finally, he says, I'll give you $25 a week and I'll move you into the house. The musicians lived up on the second and third floors of Ike's house and down in the basement. And when I became pregnant, I moved in with Raymond for a while. We talked about marriage or whatever, but it didn't happen. Soon he was gone. So now she's living in the house, fully dependent on Ike. Like all of her money is coming from him. Oh, no, she's pregnant. She's in the house. And Ike is with a girl named Lorraine who is also pregnant. This is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Okay, so Lorraine gets nervous that the baby that Tina is pregnant with is actually Ike's. And she goes into the house with a gun and threatens to kill Tina. And Tina's just like, please don't do this. I swear to God, it's not Ike's. So Lorraine goes back upstairs, locks herself in the bathroom, and shoots herself through the lungs. And I guess it's confirmed because she survives it. But I keep saying like, yeah, it looked really bad because I picked up the gun to see what had happened. And now my fingerprints are on it. And I'm like, well, it was your gun to start with. So your fingerprints were on it. And then he's like, and then I dragged her to the bed before I called the police. And so there is part of me that's like, did you shoot her? And then she's like, yeah. And then she was just babbling, saying, don't kill me. Don't kill me. But luckily, she forgot that when she woke up and remembered that she had killed herself. And I'm like, OK, so it sounds like Lorraine did not shoot herself. Doesn't that make more sense that he would have shot her? Yes. She goes on to get pregnant with Ike's baby. Which begs the questions, what does shooting someone in the lungs do? To harm your body. Like Seems she's like, like nothing. quickly pregnant. I'm like, is that not a pretty major problem, though? 
Okay, so Tina keeps insisting, and at this point she's still Anne, that her and Ike are like brother and sister. And I think she really believes that they have a brotherly-sister relationship. Lorraine is still a bit jealous, and she's living there. She's singing with them. So she has the baby, Raymond Craig, who goes by Craig on August 20th, 1958. She ends up moving to an apartment down near the Hotterman tracks. This is when she takes on a second job so that she can support her son. And then because Ike was always bickering with his musicians, always fighting with them about something, usually money, I suddenly became the main singer. So I moved out of the Hotterman Tracks apartment and Craig and I moved into Ike's house in East St. Louis. And that was the beginning, although I didn't know at the time of Ike Turner moving in on my life. The first thing he did was raise me up to $25 a week. So then him and Lorraine kind of break up and he... But like literally kind of. Like literally kind of break up. I don't know that he ever fully broke up with anyone. And he makes a move on... Tina and she's like wait what the fuck was that and can I say it's very confusing because she's like we really were just like brother and sister and I often slept in the bed with them because we were just like all brothers and sisters and even sometimes when I was alone on the road Lorraine wasn't with us I just would go sleep with Ike because he would protect me from the other band members who would threaten to come find me in my sleep and I'm like oh my god that's like so scary to think that Ike Turner was the safest place but then Ike says this quote because you know they're all being interviewed and I highlighted the whole thing saying what the fuck words are these yeah the first time I went with her, I felt like I'd screwed my sister or something. I mean, I hope to die. We really had been like brother or sister. It wasn't just her voice. I had another girl in St. Louis that sang better than she did. Girl named Pat. I don't know her last name, but I got a baby by her too. Anyway, Anne and me was tight. What? What is like, what was the beginning and end of that sentence? Like, what was the point of what you're saying? Tina Turner goes on to say, I fell in love, became addicted to it, you might say. And I do think that's the problem is she became addicted I mean, first of all, she had always dreamed of being on stage. She'd always dreamed of performing. This man was making that dream come true. She says even when she was little, before she had seen magazines, before she had any idea of what glamour in Hollywood was, she would put on her mom's bra and underwear and go like lay out by the pool. Like she just like knew in her heart she was meant for glamour and performance. Yes. And she'd always dreamed of this. And this man was making that dream come true. Second of all, I think that every woman has this instinct, especially in like a toxic environment, that if a man has his choice of women, like it feels good to be the chosen. So they keep having this affair with Lorraine on the road. I mean, and of course, Tina is one of many. By the end of January 1960, Tina becomes pregnant again, this time by Ike. At the same time, Ike decided to get back together with Lorraine, by whom he had since fathered a second son, Michael. He maintained Tina, however, as his number one girl on the side. Oh, God. So Tina is depressed because she is the number one girl on the side and she is pregnant. I don't think she identifies how quickly she was tired of this situation because she says that she spent seven years in love with him. Well, she says she spent seven years falling in love and then falling out of love. Yeah. Well, she spent seven years loving him and seven years hating him in a 14-year-ish relationship. Well, she says I spent seven years like falling in love, realizing what was going on, then falling out of love, and then seven years hating. Okay, okay. But what I mean was this is seven months in. (laughs) And she says before that she didn't even like him. Yeah. I mean, she barely ever liked him. She just kind of accepted it and then was like Stockholm syndromed. I mean, she wasn't Stockholm syndromed. She was imprisoned. Yeah. But like the part of her that felt for him. Yeah. She often is like, I don't know. I just felt bad for him. Like I didn't want him to feel abandoned. She's like, people were always leaving because, you know, he was killing them. <laughs> and he was chasing them out the door with a gun and then they would leave. So they write a song called Fool in Love. And they end up getting signed to this record label, a New York record exec named Juggy. Juggy Murray. At Sue Label. He likes it. And he goes, okay, who are we crediting this to? And I guess Ike. So at this point, she is Anna Mae Bullock. And then she just finds out that her name is now Tina Turner. 
And the Kings of Rhythm no longer exist. The song is being credited to Ike and Tina Turner. And she's like, who is Tina? Who is Turner? She was Tina Turner. At this point, because the Kings of Rhythm, everybody was always abandoned. And by abandoning, I mean like being chased out by abuse, anger, insanity, being fired, being ripped off. I mean, he was a horrible person to work with at all. So the Kings of Rhythm had come and gone, come and gone many times over. So he invents this new band, Ike and Tina Turner. So she's worried about the name change, but now she's pregnant with Ike Turner's baby at this point. She wanted to sing, and yes, she wanted to be a star, but what about love and marriage? She wanted them too. But Ike, with his compulsive womanizing and violent tempers, seemed an unlikely candidate for either. I loved Ike as much as I knew about love then, but I didn't want our relationship to go any further. He had already told me that if the record was a hit, he wanted to leave St. Louis and go to California, and he wanted me to come with him. I said I didn't know about that. I didn't even know what California looked like. After a while, it started to seem a little like paradise, but we were two totally different people. I knew it could never work between us. So when he got the record deal, I went to talk to him. First, he told me how it was going to be from then on. He would pay my rent, but keep all the money for himself. I told him I didn't want to get involved any further with him. And that was the first time he beat me up. He kept control of me with fear. After that, he made me go to bed and he had sex with me. My eye was all swollen. God, it was awful. And that was the beginning, the beginning of Ike instilling fear in me. Why didn't I leave him? It's easy now to say that I should have. But look at my situation then. I already had one child and I was pregnant with another by him. Singing with Ike was how I made a living and I was living better than I ever had in my life. What was I going to do? Run back to Barnes Hospital and try to get my job back as a nurse's aide? No, I was hurt and I was scared, but I couldn't think about going back. I had to keep going forward. So I decided to stay with Ike. So I said to myself, I'll stay right here and I'll just try to make things better. I wasn't as smart then as I am now, but whoever is. Full in Love is their debut single and it ends up doing pretty well. The song itself is not that incredible. She doesn't like it at all. (laughs) She hates most of the music they made together. But her voice like catches people off guard. Yeah. Another thing that really caught people about the song besides her voice is the content of the song. They say most, you know, quote unquote, girl songs at the time tend to fetishize the boy, the irreplaceable hunk whose incandescent presence life would lose all meaning. But Tina was talking about got my nose open and that's no lie. I'm going to keep him satisfied. This was a real woman singing. Like, it really, like, spoke to women. Tina, unlike Ike's interchangeable array of other vocalists, could not be replaced. So around this time, she takes Craig to the doctor with a cold. And the doctor looks at her and goes, ma'am, you have jaundice. We can't release you. So the doctors will not let her go home. And they have, like, a show because they're touring like crazy. Her eyes are yellow. She finds out she has hepatitis and has been infecting her horribly. She's, like, locked up in a hospital. They're like, we cannot release you. You could still be contagious. She's visibly pregnant. Lorraine is there saying, who's the father of this baby? And all Ike cares about is getting her on the road so that she can go tour this song, which is becoming a hit that she can't stop hearing in the hospital. She's like, I fucking hate this song. It's playing on the radio every day. Ike eventually makes her break out in the dead of night against doctor's orders. The Ike and Tina Turner Review was thus launched on its first tour. An immediate requirement was female backup singers to replicate the fool in love sound. They'd previously only had male backup singers. And then with this new... Vibe, they needed female backup singers. Of course, they're just like all women that Ike was stripping. Ike and Tina appeared on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. They start really becoming an act to see. They go to Vegas, which is a huge win for them. And then when they're in Vegas, Ike goes, how pregnant are you? And she doesn't even know because she's barely been to the doctors because she's been touring every night. And he goes, let's get you to L.A. right now because I don't want to have this baby and be stuck here in Vegas. I want to be in L.A. so that we can work. He drives her to L.A., They arrive in the morning that night, her water breaks and she goes into labor. I'm like, not a moment too soon. In the early morning hours of October 27th, Tina gave birth to her second son, Ronald Rennell. 
The baby, as Lorraine, among others, was not slow to notice, had a very familiar look about him. That was a shameful period for me. Up till then, Lorraine never really knew what was going on because Ike and I kept our relationship sort of low-key. Everyone thought we were still just friends. But on the road, the fans all thought Ike was my husband. So then it becomes this situation where she has to just kind of be the in-house mistress of Ike. I became very unhappy with that setup. I mean, here I was having a baby for this man. And here was the common-law wife that I was replacing. The baby was born and he came out looking just like Ike. And that's when Lorraine finally got fed up and decided to leave him. So eventually we got the kids and just started living together. So she gets out of the hospital and three days later, Ike had an important date up in Oakland. She performs like days out of the hospital. Three days. She goes, I got dressed and went on stage and did the show. It wasn't too bad. I only did two songs and I sat down to sing them. I bled a lot when I hit the high notes, though. (sighs) After that, I got two weeks to completely recover. You don't completely recover in two weeks. She ends up burning her hair off, and that is when she gets into wigs. Yeah, and then they give all of the Iquettes, which are the three female backup dancers, the same wigs, and that's when like that Iquette look gets hot. It was no longer the Kings of Rhythm, an ever-shifting assemblage of R&B musicians. Now it was a crack band in the service of a blossoming star. She's also really good at capturing dance crazes and learning them and then showing them off on stage like as soon as they become hot. She really takes it upon herself to keep the show fresh and with the times. And that actually ends up becoming a huge problem between her and Ike is that he is very set in his ways and she is very interested in pursuing like what's going on now. So Fool in Love becomes a top 30 pop hit. And in LA, Ike could hustle with the big boys. True, he still lacked charisma as a performer and that would probably never come. Ike (laughs) remained happiest on stage with his back to the audience, calling the songs and delineating the groove with the drummer. But Tina, with her resounding voice, her heartbreaker face, her knockout legs, Tina had a star power to spare. And Ike, in an increasingly complete way, had Tina. This is the thing that is so shocking and impressive to me, is the way that she moves, the way she dances, the way she performs. There was no reference for it. Even if someone was out there doing something similar, she's never seen it. Like, this is just completely from within She has this like light inside of her that knows how to rock a stage in this way. Like there was no YouTube in the 70s. She just knew how to get up there and put on a show that like sent everyone to their fucking knees, but then back up to their feet so they could jump up and down and say that was the best show I've ever seen. And she was working like a dog. I began to realize how unhappy I was with my life. I guess I had achieved success of some kind, but the truth was it was a constant hard work. If we weren't on stage, we were on the road to the next show. If we weren't on the road, we were in the studio. In every city, no matter where we were, he'd find a studio to work at. If we weren't recording, we were rehearsing, running down songs, working out steps. It was nothing to drive 700 miles from one show to the next. Ike sitting in the back seat with his guitar, me and maybe an Iquette or two there with him, singing and practicing new tunes on the way. It never stopped. They also were their own roadies. He was so cheap that he did not give them a roadie, a tech. The guy who was driving the tour bus all day would then be the lights guy. You had to bring your own instruments and lug them around. I mean, when we were talking about his financials, like that's why he had so much money is because he wasn't spending any money. Like the only person who was making money was Ike. It was my relationship with Ike that made me the most unhappy. At first, I had been really in love with him. Look what he'd done for me. But he was totally unpredictable. You'd hear a sound and you'd look up and he'd be there drumming his nails on the table, staring at you, kind of muttering, you're screwing around with me for no reason. Then you knew you were going to get it. The fighting got worse when we moved to Los Angeles. Ike was so desperate for another hit, he just got crazier and crazier. He would beat me with shoes, shoe trees, anything that was handy, and then he would have sex with me. It was torture, plain and simple. I always had a cut in my head somewhere, always had bruises. And on top of that, there was the mental torture. So the Ikeettes come out with their own song. 
well, I mean, he writes a song and puts it out under the name The Iquettes. That way he can release it on a different label than Ike and Tina Turner as an act and just make more money. You said this earlier off mic, but he really was running like a music sweatshop. So they write a, a couple of hits. They have an album that comes out. A Fool in Love is on it. Tra la la la, Prancing, You Should Have Treated Me Right. Songs like I'm Blue. There's like songs that do well and they're making profits. The early songs at their best were vibrant and startlingly earthly, a powerful commercial transfiguration of the roadhouse blues of Ike's Delta youth. But they also began to reveal the limits of Ike's compositional abilities, limits that Tina was already beginning to find stifling. Minus her voice, most of his music would have been considerably less of interest. Tina's continued presence on record and in the review was obviously imperative. Ike decided to marry her, a strategy that had always proved effective in the past whenever he required the prolonged services of a useful woman. She is his third wife. His second wife? I guess he was married to Lorraine, maybe. And then before that, there was another woman named Anna Maria, who he brought on as a business person. So Tina says, he asked, do you want to marry me? That was during one of those intimate mushy, mushy moments. And I said, yeah. By then it was always, yeah, because if you said no to Ike, you were going to get beat up a few days later. I knew that I didn't want to marry him. I didn't want to be a part of his life. I didn't want to be another one of the 500 women he had around him by then. But I was, well, I was scared. I mean, she's working her ass off and making no money. He does not let her have any money. At some point in her 30s, she starts asking for $5 a week as an allowance just to like be able to pay for gas. So he buys them a house. And he was always cheating. She was always catching him with one of the ICAS, which is anyone. The touring virtually never stopped. First, there would be 90 days of dates in and around LA. Then they would do 90 dates on the roads and they'd come back and do another 90 dates in Los Angeles. If they were doing two dates and there was like a place they could stop off and do in between, like she was doing 15 shows a week. It was horrible. Then a woman comes into their life, Anne Kane. Kane was young, born the same year as Tina, and she came in because they had all these kids that they really did not have time to care for, and they bring her in as kind of a housekeeper and nanny to the children. So they're up to four. Ike had two babies by Lorraine. Ike and Tina have one baby together, and then Tina had the baby by that... Raymond. Raymond, who's gone. I was away a lot because Ike always kept us on the road. There was nothing I could do about that. And when they're on the road, he's cheating on her all the time. Yeah. So he would have these party rooms set up for the band and the crew that she wasn't allowed to go to. He would send her home early so that he could cheat on her with one of the Ikeettes. And the sickest thing is because she wasn't allowed to know anybody outside of Ike's circle and he kept her so busy and he kept her so locked away that her closest friends were these women that were Ike's full-time mistresses and also getting abused. And she's like, well, they're the only other people who knew what I was going through. Ike was quick to realize that Anne Kane, with her sharp mind and polished manner, would be an even greater asset as the manager of Spudnik, the booking agency he was operating out of the Olympia Drive house. So that's the house he bought. He has Anne come on instead of being a housekeeper as a business manager. And for a long time, she managed their business, their touring. Their children. Their children. That was when the kids finally started getting proper training and manners and things when we got Anne Kane, says Tina. And Anne Kane was also banging Ike. Of course, Anne Kane was really after Ike, which was what I didn't like about her. Over the years, Ike was involved with other women that had worked for us, but none of them had openly tried to take him. Anne was different. Anne says, nobody should treat another human being the way Ike treated her. He was so horrible. One time in Dallas, I saw him stick a lit cigarette up her nose. And he would beat her with the clothes hangers, too, for no reason. But Tina stayed. She stayed because of the children. But nevertheless, Anne Kane, too, soon came under Ike's erotic sway, a development of which Tina became aware during Kane's first road trip on the review. I will say Anne Kane was fucking ballsy. She was wearing his and hers t-shirts with him. And then at one point she made Tina ride in the bus with the rest of the band so that Anne and him could be alone in the car. So then they hired Rhonda Graham to be the housekeeper to take care of the kids. She stays in their life for quite a long time. Eventually, Rhonda, too, was touring with the review, alternating with Anne Kane as the road manager. 
Rhonda's more intimate involvement with Ike, that inevitable feature of most of his relationships with female employees, was a big mistake, she says. You lived in such fear, you know? You wanted to get out, but you were afraid to, just like Tina. And if somebody did leave, Ike would always track them down. Then it was, oh, well, I'm sorry, and everything was supposed to be okay, erased, and you shouldn't want to leave anymore. It was rejection, I think. Ike just couldn't handle rejection. Tina says, I mostly felt trapped in that life. I guess some people in my position might have turned to drugs or drinking, but I never did. I didn't like the idea of putting those poisons in my body. I knew I needed something to help me deal with what my life had become to help me find a way out, but I knew that drugs weren't it. The only thing she did take was Benzedrine, which Ike used to make her because when they were recording for a while, her voice would get hoarse. He'd say, take this pill and you'll be able to sing. Then I'd sing over the hoarseness and the next day I wouldn't have any voice at all and my jaw would hurt from the clenching and tension. But when Ike was recording, I had to sing, sore throat or not. And so I had to take the Bennies. So then the Ikeettes walk because they ask for more and Ike is like, no. And they just leave and they get their own record deal and then he blackballs them and I think nothing ever happens to them. I think they like end up becoming touring musicians and session singers, but they tried to put their foot down with Ike and they lost. They had a hit on their own that he put under a different record label so he could maximize profits. And they were like, fuck you. You're not paying us anything. We're going to go be our own band. We have a hit on the radio. And they weren't allowed to use the name. Anybody who worked with them, he'd punish. And as Ashley said, yeah, they just gave up in the industry. Their label is being run by Bob Krasnow. And Krasnow tells them about this producer called Phil Spector. A wall of sound. Phil Spector wants to record with Tina Turner. And she's like, no. <laughs> they give her $25,000, which at the time was an unheard of sum of money. They were like, most people were putting out five albums for $20,000. So a $25,000 advance on one single for just one aspect of it was just like never been done before. And now I feel like you get $25K for just a verse, no album out. Now I feel like you get $25K for 25 billion streams. So it's it's weird the way the industry is divided that way. Anyway, so she says for that kind of money, of course. The rule, though, Ike Turner is not allowed to step foot on the fucking property. So they put a song out and she loved it. It's called River Deep Mountain High. And they talk about the experience of recording it and how she gave it her all every single day. And it wasn't right. And then one day she had to take her top off so she could like sway to the music and really feel it. She was drenched in sweat. And she just nailed it. And everybody in the room got chills. And people were hearing the song and like falling to their knees and weeping. And they're like, it's the greatest thing that anyone's ever been done. We've never heard anything like it. They're like, to this day, it stands the test of time. It's something no one's ever heard before. And then it goes out. And boy, oh boy, does it flop. River Deep Mountain High was, to the amazement of everyone involved with the record, a disaster. <laughs> River Deep was Phil's demise in the record business. He is somebody who had, had 25 consecutive number one hits, and this was such a fucking flop that he like never left his house again. <laughs> the record just never found a home. It was too black for the pop stations and too pop for the black stations. Nobody gave it a chance. But I still felt real good about that record. It was something that I could be proud of because River Deep proved that I was capable of doing something other than what Ike had me doing. However. It went balls to the walls in Britain. It was a huge hit on top of the pops in Britain. And you know who absolutely loved it? A little band called the Rolling Stones. So the Rolling Stones were like, well, we've got to get Ike and Tina over here to open for us. So she becomes friends with the Stones. And she says that they are in awe of her. They talk to Mick Jagger, if you've ever heard of the man. And they say, I think we worked much harder after Ike and Tina had been on, you know, because they would really work the audience very, very hard. And that's the reason we had them on. There's no point in having some jerk band on before you. Ike and Tina Turner certainly did that job admirably. Tina's voice was very powerful and also very idiosyncratic. They like just loved her. And they were like, yeah, she never went out, but she wasn't a party pooper. They really liked her. Okay. Tina says that she opened for them for like years. She never even saw them play. 
<laughs> she was like, I was too busy because Ike, anytime one of the girls, one of the Ike gets any of the other band members, anytime their outfits were fucked up, he would find them money. So they would sometimes come back from tour in debt to Ike. So she was always like sewing her outfits and working on the show because they didn't ever hire anybody to help them. Even Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones was like, they used to say they get about $25 or $30 a week. And if they damaged their stage clothes, ruined their tights or anything, they'd have to pay for it themselves. We thought that was quite bizarre. Nobody was earning a lot of money in those days, but that was really scraping the barrel. Boy, was it. England was the beginning of everything for me, the beginning of my escape from Ike Turner. I guess you could say, and the beginning of me seeing a new way of life, a new way of living. In the middle of that tour, we took a few hours off to do this English TV show where we got to be friends with a woman there. And this is funny. She's like, the woman there was a lesbian and they were all asking me, am I a lesbian? And she goes, you know, I've thought about it a lot. But uh, no, I think I just love the way women do makeup because I like makeup too. (laughs) But it doesn't bother when people think she's a lesbian. I guess that's a big rumor about her. She also went to France and she loved that. I think she got out and about and really was like, okay, there's a world out here and I'm going to take it one day. Yeah, France is what made her like the name Tina because she hated when Ike said Tina and she was like, what the fuck is this name? And then she went to France and they would be like, a Tina. And she was like, oh, that's nice. So another thing that she discovers for the first time in Europe is woo-woo stuff that she gets actually very into. She would love Grimoire Girls. She would love it. So she has this friend in Europe who takes her to get her cards read for the first time. I had to sneak out, of course. I told Ike I was going shopping and Vicky took me to this woman. I forget her name, but I'll never forget what she told me. You will be among the biggest of stars and your partner will fall away like a leap from a tree. She also told me something about the number six. I held on for six months and then I held on for six years after that. I just kept holding on. But eventually this does start a chain of events that helps her finally leave. I think it like starts sowing the seed in her that like there is a way out and she will get there and she doesn't know when she's going to see the opportunity. But like she knows that this is not the thing she's going to do forever. Yeah. In the wake of River Deep, she was coming to be seen, at least among the musically astute, as the indispensable half of the Ike and Tina partnership. This did not make Ike happy exactly, but he was a background man by his own admission. And if Tina's head was liable to be turned by this sudden attention, well, Ike impressed upon her the importance of thinking twice before making any rash moves. She obviously had no power in that relationship. And she always said the one thing I told Ike was just do not bring women home. And then she says she like left for one week to work, came back and found out that not only had he moved a woman in, but like he was showing off photos of women in their bedroom, like showing them to Tina. And that was Anne. By this time, I'd really had it with Anne. After that, it got to be a pattern with him. The women, Ike had no shame and women liked him. I actually tried to leave Ike once a few years earlier. There had been this wig I wanted and Ike wouldn't buy it for me, but he had gone and bought something for one of the Ike cats and I was so hurt. So I went and bought the wig myself. And of course, he comes home and he's really angry and he beats her over it. And she says, like, I didn't even have any access to money. Once I had to beg him to have $5 a week. And he said no. So she gets this wig and then she gets on a bus to St. Louis and she tries to just run away. And somebody must have tipped off Ike because she fell asleep on the bus. And when she arrived at St. Louis, he was knocking on the window. It's so scary. Boy, I remember that was the first time I got it with wire hangers. He said, I was just trying to ruin his life. I was like everybody else, all the other guys that had left him. He was always violent, but cocaine made everything worse. Everything came quicker. Getting mad, the fighting, the impatience with whatever business problems there were. Ike gets very into cocaine, and he remains into cocaine for the next, as long as we know him. If I thought he was bad before, the cocaine started making him evil. Tina's depression deepened in 1967 and gave way to 1968. Anne Kane is still bopping around, and Tina's like, I wish he would just divorce me and marry Anne Kane because I would love to just be coworkers. There's also this other woman named Anne Thomas, who's an Iquette who can't sing but looks just like Tina. 
Yeah. Ann Thomas is like her best friend slash Ike's live-in mistress. And they had found Ann Thomas when like she was 16. She was a teenager in the audience who he just kind of groomed and was just like in the same situation as Tina. She says that it was crazy because Ann Thomas really was basically her best friend. She's like, I don't know. We were in the exact same situation. So we would just laugh together about how sad we were all the time. They even ended up getting pregnant together. And by that, I mean at the same time. So Tina said to Ann, I'm not having another baby for him. Forget that, honey. If you want it, you have it. And Tina terminated that pregnancy. When I found out that Anne was pregnant by Ike, I lost all feeling for him as my husband. That was it. I really wished that Ike would just marry her and then we could become like brother and sister again, just strictly business. She even says that like the way that he was so blatant about sleeping with all of them, he would make them get connecting rooms at a hotel, leave Tina's bed, go be with Anne Thomas through the connecting door, leaving the door open and then just come back to Tina. I mean, he had this way of traveling where he would make them travel where they would sit three across on an airplane. They weren't allowed to take first class, even though she was making him tons of money. And he would want to sit. So he had Anne on one side, Tina on the other side, and he would lay across them with his head in Anne's lap and his feet in Tina's lap. And that's how they would travel. And they had no choice. He just insisted upon it. So Anne Kane leaves. She's like, I think Ike is crazy and this isn't fun for me anymore. And she says he would never hit her because she was raised from a well-to-do family. She had gone to private school. And she says, which I find really fucking obnoxious, like he knew better than to beat me because I'm the kind of person that'll have you put in jail if you beat on me. And Ike knew that. Okay, you were just like fine watching it though. And then she says, but the cocaine changed him. And at one point he started beating her with like a guitar and then blamed her for breaking his guitar. And I thought to myself, this man is changing. This man is crazy. This is where I really am like, fuck you, Ann Kane. I know you were a victim just like the rest of them. But the way that 40 years later, you're able to sit here and be like, that's when I realized he wasn't a good person. It's one thing when he's beating Tina to shit, but me, that's not okay. I don't know that she was a victim like the rest of them. I really don't like her. I'm on Tina's side 100%. And that's valid because Anne Kane is like heavily quoted and interviewed throughout this book. So she has her own story in here too. And can I say, Tina hates her and Tina doesn't hate anyone. Tina's like, I don't know, my husband's other mistresses were my best friends because there was nothing I could do about the situation. I was trapped and like I loved just like commiserating with these other girls. Why was Anne Kane so different? Because Anne Kane is bad. Dude, and then they like talked to the nurse at the local hospital that she was frequenting because she was constantly like beat up. And the only time they ever admitted her was when she overdosed. Tina was 28 years old, going on 29, and there seemed no way out of the endless cycle of overwork and abuse in which she found herself trapped. The touring never stopped. The rehearsals after the shows in the car at the house where Ike had set up a little demo taping unit in the living room were incessant. Tina says, yes, it finally got to the point where I was ready to die. Ike was beating me with phones, with shoes, with hangers, choking me, punching me. It wasn't just slapping anymore. One time right before a show, he punched me in the face and broke my jaw and I had to go on and sing anyway with blood gushing from my mouth. I just could not take it anymore. Okay, can I say something? What was anyone else doing? Like, I'm sorry. I can't believe it was another era was like another fucking era. Okay, I know this is misplaced maybe, but the person I found myself getting angrier and angrier at was Jay-Z. Because of that verse he does in Drunken Love, where he has that line that's like, eat the cake, anime, eat the cake, anime. And I'm like, it's in this book where he made her eat a pound cake, very um, Matilda-esque. But for you to have any familiarity with their relationship, to joke about it is so fucked up. To joke about it in relation to your wife is like fucked up. Like, I don't know how you could do that and not feel sick to your stomach about anyone you care about. Yeah. The fact that Ike gets to be interviewed in this book made me want to like kill him. Same. I literally was getting to the point where I was like, this is somebody who needs to be dead because of the pain he inflicts on everyone around. Like the amount of abuse. 
He is a monster. I agree. Like he needs to be in jail. He is somebody that like needs to be in jail. Yes. Anyway. So she goes and gets a prescription for sleeping pills and takes 50 Valium and then goes to the show because she thinks that she needs to step on stage and then pass out or die on stage. That way Ike still gets his fee for the night because she feels so bad about if they don't get on stage, then he's liable to pay back the venue. Whereas if they get on stage, then he has done his appearance. Ike is obviously furious with her. She gets to the hospital. Apparently, like she just keeps saying, I just want to die. I just want to die. They got me in the hospital. They put my stomach out. And when they couldn't get any pulse on me, nothing. The doctor thought I was gone. He went out and told Ike. And Ike said, my doctor told me this later. Ike said, let me talk to her. And he comes in and he starts talking. And the doctor told him to keep it up. Then they started getting a pulse. Later, we joked that Ike must have said, you motherfucker, you better not die. I'll kill you. That's how insanely afraid of that man I was. I had started losing love for Ike. And now after the pills in the hospital, I was starting to hate him. As soon as I got out of the hospital, Ike made me go right back to work. My stomach still wasn't right, but he didn't care. He forced me. I went on stage trying to sing and hurting so bad. And when I came off, I was coughing and throwing up. I didn't even make it back to the dressing room. I was standing in the hallway, all sick and choking. And I came up and said, it serves you right. You want to die, then die. I think that's when even his girlfriends, the secretaries, the various ICATs, all those women that were so crazy about him, even they started wondering what kind of guy this was that they were involved with. And that is when I started to hate Ike Turner. So they get an invitation to record with Otis Redding. Ike's like, no. And they're like, I mean, obviously you have to go. That's insane if you don't. They did. I've been loving you too long, which became their most substantial pop hit in years, rising to 68 on the charts in May 1969. Whenever they have a moment, like a breakout moment, it's Tina that's breaking the fuck out. And it's in spite of him. It's in spite of him. Yeah. He's like obviously the engine behind all of this because he's just in complete control of it. But like she is the reason anyone's looking. She also starts learning about the Beatles and Rolling Stones starts covering their songs. Again, she was not ever able to listen to Rolling Stone music because she was so busy doing her own costumes. I never really had time to listen to music before because I was always working. But then she hears Honky Tonk Woman and Come Together. And she does these covers and people love those. Then she gets sick again. She is really not feeling well. And the doctor was like, you have bronchitis. You need to stop working. But Ike was like, obviously, you're not going to stop working. Then the bronchitis progresses to pneumonia and the doctor's like, you obviously must stop working. And Ike was like, you're not allowed. And then the pneumonia was tuberculosis. And so she had to stop. Like she had to stop working because she had full on fucking tuberculosis. She had a glandular infection, lumps in my legs. My right lung had collapsed. I was half dead and I'd been traveling with all of this. One day when I was still really sick, I woke up in my hospital bed. My room was full of flowers. One arrangement in particular stood out with a card on it that said from Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. And she was starting to think about all the people who did love her from her friends, her fans, you know, who didn't send flowers. Ike, of course. Are you kidding? So she goes home finally from the hospital and Ike has remodeled their entire house and made it fucking ugly. With all of the money that she made. Ike also has a gambling problem, but I don't think we need to dive into it. They go to Vegas to open for Elvis Presley and he's gambling a lot, a lot. But who among us, you know? Then she hears Proud Mary and she's like, okay. We got to work on this. So she covers it. She spent two years working on that cover. And let me tell you, every minute was worth it. Because we've been listening to it at every wedding since. (sighs) Released in January 1971, it quickly became their biggest U.S. hit. So then Ike buys his own recording studio. And he's just dumping gazillions in there. I will say it could have been a good investment if he was not the worst person in the world. But so he 
buys all the state-of-the-art equipment. He builds like a sex chamber for himself. It's this room that you can only get into if you dial this number on the phone in the hallway. And it's literally just for him to have mistresses. And it's right down the road from their house. And it's where he can like stay up all night and record and record and record and like call Tina at the house down the street and be like, okay, we're ready for you to record. You would think that this would be better for her. And in some ways it was because it got him out of the house all the time. But the problem was that she was on call at all hours. I mean, this is fucking Tina Turner, the star of the goddamn band that paid for that room. And he would call her at 3 a.m. and be like, bring us sandwiches. And she would just have to. She says, I started drinking coffee at this point so that I could be up at all times to like serve him whatever he needed. It's so fucked up. He's doing so much cocaine. So Ben Fong Torres from Rolling Stone does a profile on them. And it is the first public suggestion that Ike is an abusive monster. Ike is furious. He's like, how dare Rolling Stone write a smear piece about me? But I guess the problem is, like, none of it means anything. Like, she's on stage with a bloody jaw. Rolling Stone magazine is writing about their toxic relationship, and it just, no one will ever do anything. Meanwhile, Tina is just, like, biding her time, trying to figure out how to get out, but also still has, like, one of those weird relationships where you feel bad for the person who's, like, made your life hell. I always really wish that I could get what he wanted, a string of hit records, because when he did, I was going to leave him. I didn't know how, but I knew by then that one day, some way I would. So when he built that studio, I thought, wonderful, I'll be rid of him. Things just got so out of control. He was like up for days. Everything was bad. Also, one of his sons even is like, the problem was the equipment was so high tech. There were so many options. There were so many tracks now that you could produce on. And he wasn't that good of a producer. So he was like paralyzed by indecision and options. And then, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, but he ends up ruining the equipment because it was just so filled with cocaine, was just falling into all the crevices and it just was eating away at the equipment and like destroying the sound quality of the state of the art studio he's built. Tina has this funny line talking about just like the boys at the studio all night just doing drugs and thinking they were making great music. They looked so silly and they thought they were so cool. Ike would come up to me and start talking and I wouldn't understand a thing he said. You can imagine these guys who like think that they look so hard and they're like being so intense and like we're the most serious musicians in the world and they're just like bopping around on cocaine. By now, the Turner's glory days of chart stardom were coming to an end. The Turner's next album, Nuff Said, failed to reach the top 100. Oof. How many albums were there even? The thing is, they were not a hit making band for the most part. But they were incredible live performers. First of all, Ike never let their touring schedule slow down. But their ticket selling ability really hardly waned whether or not they were putting out hits for many years just because people knew how great they were live. By fall, Ike and Tina Turner did have another hit, Nutbush City Limits, a hot dance number, which reached number 22 in the pop charts. And as you can tell, the most interesting thing about the record, though, was suggested by its title. It was written by the former Anne May Bullock from Nutbush, Tennessee. She becomes addicted to getting her fortune told. So she's always leaving and saying that she's going shopping, but she would go to a reader. She would read cards, palms, stars. Someone read leaves and coffee sediment. Some of them weren't for real, but others gave me something to hold on to. I started thinking about this career I had, about how I'd started out and how it would be such a glamorous life, but there was nothing glamorous about it. Then one day I brought home this pretty woman and she was into chanting. And so Tina gets really into chanting And he obviously gets freaked out. He recognizes that there's a power here, but she believes in it. She's like, my life starts changing when I start getting into Buddhism and chanting. It wasn't witchcraft. It was Buddhism. She ends up getting to be in the movie Tommy. And she does a great job. Everybody is like, she is phenomenal in this. And she made no money, of course, because everything she does, Ike like rents her out is the verb they use in this. But these little moments where she's completely on her own and succeeding without him, and if anything, thriving because of the freedom from him, 
she starts realizing I have to get out of here. I'm going to be fine on my own. But can we talk about how good she was as the acid queen in Tommy? And I just can't believe that with such little experience doing things, like some people just have it. Yeah. I feel like to be in that major of a production, to be in like Tommy, the Who's rock opera, it's camp. But like the way she just showed up and embodied this character in this way, having never acted in a movie before, like how do you just know how to do it? It's crazy. She's like a star to her core. Yeah. On the other hand, Ronnie Turner says he was doing the same songs over and over about Ike. He'd have a good song and everybody'd be grooving to it. And then he'd stay up working on it for four days. And after a while, he couldn't figure it out. All the tracks and stuff. He'd just start adding things that didn't really go. Ike would get worse and worse. You never knew what you were getting hit for. Only Ike knew. He'd beat you up and have sex with you and argue and fight and then go play his music. And I didn't even like his miserable music. So she tries talking to him. She tries writing him letters and she tries to sit him down and say, could you just stop hitting me? Like, we can do whatever you want to do, but like, stop beating me. And it works for like a minute, but not really. Things are such a fucking mess in the studio and with the business now that he runs and gets Anne Kane back, who has since become a Jehovah's Witness. And she's like, listen, I found God. I can't work with you unless... And then she goes back and works with him. And I'm like, I don't know. How much God have you found if you're okay working with this kind of man? Yeah. She's kind of like, I'll work with you if you treat me well. But I don't know how you could be witness to such horrors and abuse and be like, this is fine as long as it's not happening to me. At this point, Ike doesn't even have a wall between his nasal nozzles anymore. He's also investing in like idiotic things. She's like, I would look into what he would have invested in and it was worth zero. People were obviously stealing from him. He was losing just suitcases of money. Tina's situation, well, I think deep down inside, Ike really did love Tina. But he was always afraid of losing her, of losing control of her. That's not love. Listen to our Patreon. We're doing bell hooks. And he felt that the only way he could keep her was to lock her up. Well, I was a different person when I came back to work for Ike, and I had found Jesus. And now I felt so bad about all the pain we had put Tina through over the years. Me and Rhonda and Gloria and Anne and all the others. She was so innocent, basically. Shut up, Anne. I kind of hate Anne Kane. I realized I could take his best lick and that's when I started leaving him again. The first time I went to a cousin's house. So she will leave for like a couple days at a time and then he will freak out. I think my leaving this time scared him a little. When I would go back because this thing had to be settled somehow, he didn't even fight with me. He just listened. She then has this realization that her life is in sevens, that every phase of her life is a seven thing. She had at this point been with Ike for 14 years and she's like, okay, it's time for me to go. And considering the imminence of this potentially dangerous passage, Tina could only feel inspired, inspirited. All the years of fear had left her finally fearless. So she's been chanting and it's been growing this strength inside of her. And then they get to Dallas. He had been awake for like 10 straight days on cocaine and then he would pass out hard. And she grabs her bag. In the car, he had beaten her horribly. Yeah, because she told him like, don't do that. She started speaking back and she just knew she was done. So then he passes out when they get to the hotel room and she just grabs a bag and she goes to a hotel nearby. She's hiding. She kind of just like escapes down the road, walks into a hotel and is like, can I speak with the manager? The manager comes down and she's like, hi, I'm Tina Turner. I can't pay you for a room right now, but I just had a fight with my husband and I like really need somewhere to stay. She's wearing a white suit that is covered in blood. So he's like, yeah, you can stay here. And he puts her up in a suite and she calls their lawyer and is like, you need to figure out how to get me out of here. He gets her back to L.A. She stays with him for a minute. And then Ike is calling and threatening the entire family. So she's like, of okay. Of the lawyer. Of the lawyer. Children of the lawyer are being threatened with murder. So then she goes to a friend's place. 
I moved place to place for two months, working my way at each one, housekeeping and cleaning, just like I had for white women back in Tennessee. And she says they'd be like, oh, no, Tina, you shouldn't be doing that, the maid. And I'd say, the maid didn't do it, so I did it. Just shut up. They learned to accept that I needed to work that way. I was working off my energy. She was also chanting for four hours a day. I stayed up indoors all day and just chanted and chanted, building up my spirit for the trials that I knew lay ahead. So she's staying with this woman, Anna Maria, who's like the sister of her friend who taught her about Buddhism. And she asked me to go to the market with her. I shouldn't have done it, but I didn't think anyone would recognize me. Of course, she's immediately recognized and she realizes she's been being stalked. Basically, she starts carrying a gun around and her friend is like, oh my God, you shouldn't be carrying a gun around. And she's like, between this and my Buddhism, I'm going to be safe. Smiley face. That's the second smiley face in the book. I do think it's important to illustrate the context that it was going to Harry's school and religion and weaponry. I mean, the police start coming up to her and being like, by the way, you know, Ike Turner is telling people he's hiring a hitman to kill you. That's when she gets scared because she's like, I can take Ike, but I can't take someone who's like paid to kill me. And they always say, do you want us to press charges? And she goes, no, you guys can't protect me from him. He also sends an ex Iquette that was one of her closer friends out of the people that came through their lives to come knock on her door. And they were going to like ambush her outside this house. And she calls the cops on them. So not only has she left this man and is in complete hiding as Tina Turner, a star, She actually has less than zero. Since it had been Tina who had walked off the final review tour and not Ike, she suddenly found herself legally liable for reimbursing all the promoters who had scheduled and advertised the tour's now canceled dates. She, for some reason, owns an old manager, and then she owes the IRS back taxes on money that Ike has completely taken. She is $500,000 in debt. She was on food stamps, and I was getting unemployment every two weeks. And between checks, we'd charge things on my credit card. So she reached out to Rhonda Graham, who was one of their old business managers slash housekeepers, like one of those people who kind of came through the system of the Ike machine. She reaches out to Rhonda and Rhonda starts helping her book appearances on TV shows because she is just Tina Turner, which apparently is an unproven entity, even though she was the Ike and Tina Turner review. But I also think she must have been locked because she didn't have access to her own record label. I wonder if she couldn't do live shows because she was in debt to all of these live performers. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. They say she couldn't do live shows because they didn't have the money to put a band together. So she couldn't book a live show because she couldn't pay a band. So I started booking her on every TV show I could. Guest appearances. I had to use a pseudonym to call myself Shannon to make the bookings because Ike had put so many threats against anyone who tried to help Tina. She also goes and finds a new lawyer who's not afraid of Ike. She finds this guy, Arthur motherfucking Leeds. He's like the only lawyer in town who's not afraid of Ike. And he is shocked when Tina says, I don't even want anything. Basically, because they had been married for so long in California, she deserves 50%. I mean, obviously, she deserves 50%. She, like, earned all of the money. But Ike will not give her a fucking dollar. And Tina's like, I'm begging you, please do not extend this in court. I need to escape from this man. I don't have it in me to fight him and pretend that all the shit that we have together is worth more than $30. And Ike is furious to find out that she never plans to record with him or perform with him again. Like, that's what really sets him off. He thought that she was, like, putting on a little show here and, like, maybe wanted a divorce. But she's like, no, no, no. We're fucking done. So she hired Rhonda Graham to be her manager, essentially. I had been living in Reseda, and after I started working with Tina, my house was set on fire twice. The place was shot up. All of her car tires had been shot. They were, like, sleeping on the ground and away from windows because people were doing drive-bys trying to kill them constantly. And their children were living there. Ike Turner's own children were in the home that he was having shot up frequently. Tina debuted a new act in an obscure club in Vancouver, British Columbia on a night that was not without glitches. So they start putting this new show together and she puts together kind of this cabaret parlor act where she's singing covers. 
She's excited to really show people that she can sing and she gets great reviews. People love the show, but she gets kind of stuck in this like club circuit where she can't really get anyone like a label or anyone like truly in the music industry to take her seriously. So then the divorce proceedings are just ongoing. Arthur is like obsessed with having all of Ike's assets appraised so that he can get a proper read on like what he should be asking for. So Tina just has to be like, stop. I don't want to talk to him anymore. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And Leeds is like kind of furious that she wants to walk away with nothing, but she just needs to be done. Tina walked away with what was on her back, essentially. And the kids. And of course, I came for them too and started putting them in the middle and be like, you choose. And Tina just went, choose him. I can't right now. I just need to get myself safe and away from here. So she says, take the fucking kids. They'd all been pretty lazy and shitty anyway. And they also, at this point, I think the youngest one was like 17. So custody is not really that big of a thing at that point. I had done it. I had been their mother. I had been his wife. And now it was time to be me. So in 1978, Olivia Newton-John is in town with her boyfriend and manager, Lee Kramer. He was in the market for new acts to manage. And Tina became interested and decided to pay Lee Kramer a visit. And can I say something very interesting at this point in the books? We're on 218. We have about 30 pages left. This point of the book gets so bogged down in like business dealings that I kind of found it hard to read, which I find so funny because obviously I'm happy for her that she's in like empowered and has a hand in her own fucking business and music. But I am like, oh, for the sake of story, it's better when you don't know the details, actually. I also think that this happens in some memoirs where these are the most recent and pivotal moments to her. So I think that she thinks that a lot of these like medium level details are a lot more important than she would have had she had 30 years of distance like she does on other parts of the book. Yeah. Okay. She's actually still half a million dollars in debt. She had paid off the promoters, but now she also owed the taxes, the penalties. And for some reason, she owed her old manager $200,000. Yeah. So Kramer is very impressed by her. He sees her live and he's like, holy shit, that was awesome. But of course, he kind of pawns her off on this guy, Roger Davies, because he has to work with Olivia Newton-John more closely because she's the star client. Roger Davies has a sense that the Disco Review Act has got to go. He's like, it's very dated. It feels like everyone in her band and the dancers are all old. She's a rock and roll legend. She's got a voice that could kill. We got to get her where she's meant to be. He basically sits her down and says, you have to fire your entire band and everybody and dress different. And we have to like rebuild the show from the ground up. And they do. And it is effective. She also has this whole side about how she didn't forget about love or like lose faith in love, even though Ike sucks so bad. So she goes to this place, The Ritz in New York City. And this is, she hadn't played New York City in 10 years. And this is where things really changed for her. She goes and she has these electric performances, one better than the next. And it's like this real reminder that this is a fucking star who has not been tapped completely. Yeah. And like tons of celebrities turn out because she has a lot of great connections and a lot of people really love her. She was finally getting the chance to prove herself as an artist after seven years of struggle. So then she puts together an album with Capitol Records. And then right when the album is basically locked, there is like a huge shifting within the like upper management and people in charge at Capitol Records. And, you know, when there are big shifts in creative industries, a lot of the times the new executives say like, well, whatever the old executives were working on, we have to dump to prove why there are new executives here in the first place. Obviously, the old executives suck. So they get ready to dump her album in the trash after all this effort that she's put in to like recut her teeth because I just want to recap. She spent 20 years almost touring as Ike and Tina Turner, working her ass off, playing shows constantly, pumping out music, recording day and night. And then when she left Ike, she had to rebuild her career from a closet, essentially. She had, like you said, no money. And in fact, 
negative money by an obscene amount. But also she did not have connections. She didn't have any of like the numbers or the information of anyone she had ever worked with because she was so in control of Ike that she had no way to do these things on her own. And so she had completely rebuilt herself. And now Capitol Records was like, um, yeah, we're not really going to do that. So she's doing this show. It's like going to be this huge performance. Roger gets a call that Capitol Records wants 60 tickets that night. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? And it's because David Bowie, who she knew from like, you know, stardom, is like obsessed with Tina Turner and had a big meeting with Capitol Records that day. And so he was like, well, tonight I'm busy because I want to go see my favorite singer in the world, Tina Turner. And Capitol Records was like, Tina Turner, I think we own the rights to her music. So they're like, I guess we'll go and see what this is about. And they go and like she knocks the fucking socks off of the whole room. Also, John McEnroe was there. And then Capitol Records was like, well, that was awesome. I guess we'll put your record out. Another thing that was really fucking weird is she like obviously is very favored in England. She's always been like a real hit in London. And so they're putting out singles there. And like the U.S. office is refusing to put these singles out. It's really bizarre. And so she has 30 dates booked in England and they call and they say she has to redo some of this album, come back. They're like, she can't. She has 30 dates here. And they're like, cancel them. She has to come back to the U.S. Finally, Roger Davies gets on the phone. He's like, I'm begging you, understand that the only people that have stood by Tina Turner are the Brits. Let her do these fucking dates. Let her just record music here. You have studios here. And they finally give in. And thank God, because with two weeks, they put together an album. This is when she puts out the bangers. They record What's Love Got to Do With It. At first, she hates it. And then she's like, "Okay, it's actually kind of cool. When they put out What's Love Got to Do With It, it's kind of a flop. It hits the middle of the charts. And then she's with the Rolling Stones and everybody's like, why isn't Tina opening for you? And Mick Jagger's like, yeah, Tina, why aren't I don't I can't do an accent. Oh, uh, why aren't you opening for us? And Tina goes, because you haven't asked me. He goes, oh, let's rectify that. And so she opens for him. And as she's opening for them throughout the American leg of the tour, the song climbs to number two. There she is back at the Ritz a little bit later with a number two song. Thrilled. She's been asked to be in the Mad Max movie. She's in the hotel. She can't believe the line out the fucking door. She goes, who's coming here? Who are these people waiting for? Is it Bowie? And she goes, it's you. Your record's number one. The single's number one. Wait, okay. I want to re-clarify this order of events. So she wakes up in the morning and she finds out she's gotten offered a role in Mad Max, which she is really excited about because she wanted to do movies again. And this is like a big movie. She loved the other Mad Max movie. Then she goes to her record signing. She sees the line down the block and she's like, oh, that's crazy. Is someone else signing records? And they're like, nope, just you. Then she's signing records. So this is like the day of a lifetime. And she finds out whilst signing that her record is number one. And she like jumps up in front of everyone. And she's like screaming and crying. And I was crying. And then Rolling Stone called to say they're putting Tina on the cover. Everything came together at once. Suddenly, Tina was everywhere. She did TV talk shows. She did radio. She did endless telephone interviews. MTV rotated her videos around the clock. US Magazine hailed her as the grittiest rock and roll singer in the world. After a quarter of a century, Tina Turner was an overnight sensation. It took her like seven years after leaving Ike to be able to do this. Like they fought her tooth and nail. But she's too much of a star. You can't put it out. She wins the Grammy and she says, we're looking forward to many more of these. The crowd and its clamor made clear she was not alone. She won a bunch of Grammys that year. So she ends with the epilogue. Is this a happy ending or what? (laughs) A number one record, a movie. Enough money to pay off all those debts. Me, a girl from Tennessee Cottonfield, sitting on what felt like the top of the world. 
And she talks about how things have, you know, moved with her family. She's really reconciled and like worked on her relationship with her mom. What was it like when I walked out and left Ike? Yeah, I was afraid. But sometimes you've got to let everything go. Purge yourself. I did that. I had nothing but my freedom. My message here, and I do hope that in this book, there's a message for people is if you are unhappy with anything, your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your job, your boss, your car, whatever is bringing you down, get rid of it. Because you'll find that when you are free, your true creativity, your true self comes out. Now, you might not be able to stand that because you might find that your true self doesn't live up to what you think you are. You've got to know what you're dealing with when you purge yourself. My career is still in bloom and I'm not ripe enough to teach anybody. When I'm ready, I will devote all my time to that. I'll tell what I've learned. Many of you will listen and some of you will hear. (sighs) Okay, this was one of the best memoirs I think we've ever read. I love her so much. I like want to read the other memoir for the Patreon. Okay. I'm sorry that she had to be so strong. Me too. I just think about like she didn't have to fight so hard for basic survival, but I'm so in awe of her. I can't believe people can be that evil and I can't believe people can let people be that evil. I can't believe a man can act like that and then sit down for an interview. I don't mean the people that he was abusing. I mean the people that were around watching. I guess like a lot of people did walk out, but it doesn't seem that it dampened any of his opportunities in any way. I'm so happy that she became such a sensation and Ike fell away like a leaf. The only people who are still mentioning him are Jay-Z. Ashley. Yes, Claire. How fertile is the soil? Oh, my God. How fertile can it be? Five out of five? Yeah. Six out of How many warm teenies would you like to have? Five. Me too. I wish I had the opportunity. I just think that this was an incredible story of tenacity and talent. And who else do we love? Oh, we love our five-star wormies. Honestly, not as much as Tina, but close. But like a lot. Thank you so much to our gorgeous and stunning five-star reviewers and your stunning five-star reviews. Thank you, Marmy428. You are like Marnie from Girls, except for an army times better. Thank you, the sleepiest bear. Oh my gosh, you are just the sleepiest, coziest bear in the entire world. And I'm saying that from a place of authority because I happen to know Bug, who is so sleepy, but you're the sleepiest. Thank you, Court Liz N. Ugh, I'd love to see you on the courts someday. Keep falling. Thank you, Sky Roo. The sky is absolutely the limit. Your review even went beyond it, though. Thank you, Splala. That is the sound my heart makes when it sings. Thank you, K Mayer 7. I will think about this beautiful review seven days a week. Thank you, Yvette DL. One thing I'm not keeping on the DL is how much I adore this review. Ashley NR12. Oh my God. There's enough room for a billion Ashleys in this little NR12 circle. Thank you, Dina ZN. One thing that's in the ZN, which to me is the zone, is this review, baby. And thank you, DG Driss. I would never want to miss a dress like this. Thank you so much for being here and for reviewing. I freaking love you guys.